That was wonderful. It's so good to see you all. And um, we don't know exactly what the Lord uh, is doing among us, but we get to enjoy it together. And it's a wonderful thing, and it's really full of joy to see you here. Uh, I know for you introverts, it's a little claustrophobic, but I want you to know that we're glad that you have stuck it out and that you're doing this with us. This is our second week that we are going to be in the third chapter of Nehemiah, and basically it is a list of people who have accomplished an extraordinary uh, feat. And it's interesting that Nehemiah doesn't even mention himself. And Adam did a a last week. He reminded us that many commentators just want to skip over uh, chapter 3 because it looks just like a list of people doing their jobs. And at first, uh, this is going to look very dry, and we are going to read some of portions of the Scripture but it contains a list of names that are difficult to pronounce. The content seems redundant. The chronology seems to be meaningless, and we can muddle through. And it's tempting just to let this chapter go. But it really does contain some insights for the church, and it has direct application for us. So, would you please stand? Now, we're going to be reading this scripture in a different manner. Because the purpose of the reading today is not to see all the things that were being done, but I want you to see the connection from one person to another, to another, to another. So, we're not reading complete verses. So, it's going to be a little different, but I hope that at the end you will see the reason for it. Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. And next to them, Merimoth. And next to them, Meshulam repaired. Next to them, Zadok repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. And next to them, uh, Melatiah repaired. And next to them, uh, Uziel repaired. And next to him, Hananiah repaired. And next to them, Rephaiah repaired. And next to them, Jediah, uh, Jedeah repaired. Opposite his house. And next to him, Hashit, uh, Hastus repaired. Melchijah repaired another section. Next to him, Shalom repaired. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah repaired the dung gate and Shalom repaired the fountain gate. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, Repaired, And after him, the Levites repaired. Next to him, Hashabiah repaired for his district. And after him, the uh, brothers repaired. After him, Ezer repaired another section. After him, Baruch 
repaired another section. After him, Merimoth repaired another section. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab uh, repaired opposite their house. After them, uh, Ezariah repaired beside his house. After him, Benui repaired another section. Palol repaired. And after him, Padea repaired. After him, the Tekoites, uh, Tekoites repaired another section. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his house. After them, Zadok repaired opposite his house. After him, Shemaiah repaired. After him, Hananiah repaired. After him, Meshulam repaired another uh, opposite his chamber. And after him, Melchijah repaired. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. (sighs) Let's remember that uh, the power resides in God's word and you need to go home and read the whole thing and uh, feel free to be seated. Now you can see why people want to skip over uh, this list of names and families that worked on the wall. Some of you may not know, but in 846 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came and he destroyed Jerusalem. He knocked down the walls. He burned the temple. The people were deported. They were forced into slavery, and Jerusalem was left into ruins. Years later... Cyrus, the king of Persia, who conquered the Babylonians, made a decree that some of the Jews could return in three stages. In over a hundred years, they were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to discover that the city was still demolished and desolate. Nehemiah is one of these men who was given permission by the Persian king to go back to Jerusalem and do some work. Now, Nehemiah knew what his real task was, and that was to rebuild the people, to help them understand who they were as the people of God. But his first task was to organize the Jews in the area to secure the city of Jerusalem. From this chapter, we see that Nehemiah had an extraordinary gifts of administration and organization. He was able to mobilize and empower 44 separate groups of people. This passage also shows us how people working together can accomplish a lot more than one person trying to do it all or trying to run everything. The phrases next to him, next to them, after him, after them is recorded 28 times in this chapter. And the principle is very clear. Every person who professes to be a follower of the biblical God is to be involved in ministry because everybody has a job to do. And as Christ followers, we know that this is true. As we will see in a few moments when we see the New Testament application of this, we are uniquely put together. God has placed us together as a body of Christ to function here in this world for his glory. You see, Nehemiah was able to build his team around one central rallying point, And that is the purpose of the work was to glorify 
God. They were not simply building walls. They were worshiping their worthy God. And they longed for the city of God to regain its splendor and that God would get the credit. Paul tells us in Corinthians, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you go back to the first verse, Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and re- rebuild the sheep gate, and they dedicated it and set its doors in place. It is no accident that in chapter 3 that we see that the rebuilding of the wall started with the sheep gate and it ends with the sheep gate. Adam did a marvelous job last week in helping us to see the significance of the names of the gates and how it applies to our redemption. It begins and ends always with Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the sheep gate. He is also the lamb that was slain as a substitute for our sins. This gate had easy access to the temple because it was one of the most important gates of the whole city where the sacrificial lambs would be brought as a reminder of our sin and our need for salvation. It's important to always remember that no matter what we do in church work, Christ is the center of everything that we do. We also see from verse 1 that leaders must set the example. The high priest did not hesitate to get his hands dirty. He was willing to wield a hammer and he was willing to push a wheelbarrow. No leader should ever be so high and mighty that he is not willing to work alongside of his people. Now it is a sad note that later on in chapter 13 we see Elashabib partner with the enemy. But we might say, well, leaders fail. Yes, they do. But here's a more important principle. It's not how you begin a project that matters. It's how you end. And a lot of us, empty nesters especially, we're wondering not about necessarily the end of our life, but how we will live our lives from now until that day that God calls us home. Are we going to end well for His glory? Another thing that we, we didn't take time to read, but in verse 5, there are some people who will not work. In verse 5 it says, The next session was repair, uh, section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Tekoa was about 11 miles out of Jerusalem. And we're going to see that these Tekoites were very good workers, but there were some who refused to work because they didn't want to follow orders. They were too important to be under someone else. 
they were too important to get their hands dirty. But we also see in this chapter that some people do more than their particular work. In every church, there's always those who do more work than others. Do you remember the men of Tekoa Elijah just mentioned? Well, in verse 5, they finished their section. In verse 27, next to them, they repaired another section. They decided they were going to help someone else. It's not enough to look after your own interests. We need to be looking after the interests of one another. I picture them going to Nehemiah saying, Okay, boss, what's next? But they weren't the only ones. The men of Benui did the same thing. In verse 18, they finished. In verse 24, they started something else. Meshulam completed his in verse 4. And by the time you get to 31, he's working again. Merimoth repaired another session in verse 21. And it goes on and on and on. There's always people who are not just looking after their own selves. They're looking after others. We all have a tendency, just out of pride, we want to finish our own work. But do you remember even the parables of Jesus when he spoke about if a person tells you to go one mile, you go two. Do you remember the law was that you had to help a soldier to carry his equipment a mile outside the city limits? Well, as long as you're just doing what you're supposed to do, then you have no room to talk. But if you say to that soldier, I'll carry it another mile, the soldier's going to look at you and go, what's this about? Well, now I can talk to you about the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to work the law. It's about grace. Another thing we learned from this chapter is that families worked together. Either in a section in front of their home or around a neighbor. There's at least six different workers and priests who repaired portions of the wall around their own homes. In several verses, men and families built sections close to their home, and this tells me that they took ownership because they wanted to protect their families from outward aggression. Gentlemen, heads of households, One of the greatest privileges and the gravest responsibilities we have is to protect our families from those values and cultural ideals that will destroy our families. So, fathers, what are we doing to protect our families? from being bombarded with values and influences that will corrupt our families? What are we doing when we bring things into our home through media? What values are our children being taught outside your home? Places that you place them. What songs are being pumped into the ears of our families? What values are you yourselves teaching In your home, 
Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he uses, listen to me, socially accepted norms to destroy your family. We hear people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, they're legislating immorality. Parents, we are to build a moral and Christ-like wall around our home and children to protect them from the moral decay that is taking place in front of our eyes. Do you really want your family to adopt the culture of death that is being adopted in states through legislation that's leading toward infanticide? It's immoral. It's incomprehensible. An attack on the most innocent and the most vulnerable. And it's growing in our midst. Do you really want your children not to know what their identity is by what God has created them to be? You see, your children are not only the greatest value in God's sight. All children are the same equal value in God's sight. You see, the wall that I'm asking parents to build is not to isolate your family, but to control the ideas going in and out of your family. Your home is to be a safe place. But having said that, remember that some of these men left their stations when they finished and helped their neighbors. It's not enough just to be home-centered. We need to understand that we are placed in our neighborhoods for a purpose. And that's to expand God's grace and the words of grace and mercy to those who live around us. God uses all kinds of people. The first time I heard this quote was in the 70s by Dr. Adrian Rogers. God made us different so he could make us one. Now he mentions Uziel who was a goldsmith and Hananiah who was a perfume maker. But if you get 44 different groups to work together, you're going to have all kinds of different personalities and different gifted people to work together. As a Christ follower, you need to know that if you're called to salvation, you are called to be a part of a body, and you're called to serve. Many of us find it difficult, though, to get plugged in. But being plugged into ministry should not be like going out and finding a job. Finding a place of service is not like going into the workplace and trying to find what your niche is. Don't be like this guy I'm getting ready to read. You need to read, you need to hear real quickly, but with discerning so you understand how hard it is for some people to find a job. 
My first job was working in an orange juice factory, but I got canned <laughs> because I couldn't concentrate. <laughs> then I worked in the woods as a lumberjack, but I couldn't hack it, so they gave me the axe. After that, I tried to be a tailor, but it just wasn't suited for me because it was just a so-so job. Next, I tried working in a muffler factory, but that was too exhausting. I wanted to be a barber, but I couldn't cut it. I attempted to be a deli worker, but every time I sliced it, I just couldn't cut the mustard. I tried a long time to become a doctor, but I didn't have any patience. I became a professional fisherman, but I finally realized I couldn't live off my net income. I managed to get a good job working for a pool maintenance company, but it was just too draining. Next, I found an electrician interesting, but it was too shocking. And after many years of trying to find steady work, I finally decided that I could be a historian until I realized there was no future in it. Now, I don't know why it's hard for some of us to find jobs, but listen, I want you to know something. If you're part of the body of Christ, God has created you very specifically to grow as a believer in that body of Christ, but also to serve in that body of Christ. And it may be with a position or it may be because you're caring for someone else. And we are so fortunate in this church. There are so many times that it's only after the fact that I heard that some of you have gone through some stressful times. But I was also glad to hear that somebody in our congregation was walking with you through those stressful times. So how does this apply to the New Testament and to the body? We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there's a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then he lists those, but we're going to skip on because I want you to understand how they're fitting together to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who, appro- who appropriations to each the uh, one individually as he wills for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body jews or greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, then where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranges the members in the body, each one of them as he chooses. If all were a single member, where would the body be as it is? There are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which for our, <clears throat> which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is what God has made us to be. I mentioned earlier that Nehemiah didn't even mention his own name. He wanted the workers to be named, not the leaders. In Christ, only he is the head of the body. I'm not. And I don't want to be. And I'll run if you try to make me. But you know me well enough that that would be a mistake. Your elders are not the head of this body. Not anyone else. There's one head and we are the body. There is no room for feelings of superiority. There's no room for feelings of inferiority. One part should not look at another with envy, and one part should not look at another in disdain. We listen to one another, we honor one another, because it is Christ who placed us here. Why is he the head of the body? From Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on the earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the Old Testament, God is building a nation so that the Messiah would come, so that the Messiah would come and build a holy nation under Him. God is building a beautiful bride adorned with His glory, and on this earth we are His body. We are under His control and His authority. Who among you created all there is. Who among us holds everything together? 
Who among us died for the forgiveness of our sin? Who among us is the firstborn from the dead? There is none of us who are qualified to be in charge of this body. We serve one Lord, one King, and His name is Jesus. So let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Humble and submissive. He submitted all the way to the cross. He didn't hold on or grasp his prerogative to be God. But he made himself a servant. This is the Christ that we serve. This is the Christ who deserves not only our service, but our very lives. So how long are you going to hold on to your rights to be in control of your life? Will you place your hands in the hands of Christ who died and rose again and knows better not only about our life here, how it can be full and meaningful, but to have everlasting life with Him. And when we come to Him, we come to Him as clay, not having our own rights to be developed the way that we want, but for Him to develop us. And you might say, well, I don't get that. You know what His job is? I love this. The Holy Spirit's job is to conform us into the image of Christ. I can't do that on my own. But when we submit to Him, He does a grand work in us. So will you place your hand or place yourself in his hand as the potter. Would you bow with us, please? Father, we perhaps know people like the nobles of Tekoa, who, because of pride, would not be part of the people of God to build up the kingdom of God who would not submit to the authority of God and some of us even here are still wrestling with who's in charge and who's boss Father would you give us a spirit of humility Not to simply work better together, but to exalt Christ so that he would have preeminence above all things. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.